Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. Today I'd like to start with a quote by Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, The reason is the very first time, actually I think every subsequent time that I've read this quote, uh, it has touched me to the very core, and I, I think in some very real ways reoriented the way that I show up in the world. Gould says, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in the cotton fields and sweatshops. So Gould is strumming my pain with his, his fingers here uh, because I, I very much grew up in a, a marginal part of society and could have very well been, been marginalized in a, similar, in a similar way. I mean, obviously we're not talking about... Um, you know, in this day and age in the United States, we're not talking about cotton fields and and sweatshops in the same way. Um, but I, I think the overall thing that he was getting at is there are there are places in our society and people who are marginalized enough that they simply uh, there's no light on their brilliance. There's no road um, to develop that. There's no access uh, that they have in order to to become their um, to contribute in the way that they could contribute. Uh, and it was only through a few flukes that I, that you can even, I mean, that we're having this conversation right now, that I get to be in a position uh, to really be delivering this. Um, and so I'm lucky and I feel lucky and I feel super fortunate. Um, but I also know so many people who, I mean, are my direct peers. Um, I would say, you know, here I have numbers for it. I grew up in a housing project with, uh, 440 units and on average there were about uh, on average there were about four children per household so of those four children let's say one was roughly my age my my peer uh, because you know all different ages and, and so in a in a very real kind of way I had about 440 direct peers right so it's a lot of friends um, and we weren't all like close friends, but you know, we, a lot of people. Of those four hundred some odd kids that I grew up with and played with, four of us went to college. Um, and so, when you're looking at, you know, less than one percent, I say less than one percent because four hundred forty. But when you're looking at less than one percent of, of 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 a population that even got in the slipstream mm-hmm. of being able to escape uh, the, the material conditions of what it means to leave the projects, th- those, those are grim numbers. Right. Um, now, to be even more honest, half of those who went to college mm-hmm. still didn't necessarily um, escape those conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, the outlook of what it means to grow up in, in that kind of area um, and in those conditions, the outlook is bleak. 
Um, so again, you know, for me, I, I feel super lucky and, and super fortunate. But you know what Gould is on about is there's still brilliance there. Sure. There's still people who shine there. I mean, there's some amazing. And when I say amazing, I mean sometimes. I mean, look, having grown up in that environment, I had my own preconceived notions of what it means, right? The the, the way that I saw my peers. Um, and sometimes I thought that um, there wasn't much to offer, mm-hmm. which even with personal relationships, I can't imagine that society sees them in, in any different kind of way, probably less. Sure. But even people that I had personal relationships with, you know, my, my default understanding of what it was that they had to offer was that it was not that much. Mm. Um, and I didn't have the hope, I didn't have the insight that I think Stephen Jay Gould is talking about, you know, of knowing that there's actually, there's brilliance there. Um, yeah, I, I think about these types of um, people, or these people out there that, that don't really get to um, have a full understanding of what they offer. You know, there's a, a popular psychologist out there named... Uh, Abraham Maslow, he developed this uh, um, this model of um, a hierarchy of needs. Right. And, you know, it's oftentimes it's portrayed in this triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle is the physiological needs. Those are the needs for food, water, warmth, and rest. Then it goes up, and it's the needs, the safety needs. That's security. Right. Right, feeling safe where you are. Then it goes up another rung, belongingness and love needs. Those are healthy, intimate relationships with friends. And then the self-esteem needs, which are the needs for prestige and feeling of accomplishment. And then you get to the top of the triangle, which is the self-actualization, which that's then you get to achieve one of your, all of your full potential. Um, but his theory is that unless these basic needs are met, um, you can't really get to the top because you're you're really just trying to swim um, with your nose above the water, right. meeting these lower needs. So you don't really have the space, the free time to think about what it is that you can actually give or um, what your full potential is. And I'm thinking about that as you as you talk um, about this uh, these brilliant minds that don't really get to be fully engaged or noticed. Um, you're talking about, um, you know, just from your own experience that you, you just, you describe as a couple flukes that got you to where you were. Um, and I think, you know, because I think we're going to talk a little bit today about thriving and it needs to be probably understood that this idea of real thriving, where we get to kind of concentrate on what it means to be fully thriving and as a person today those basic needs need to get met so that then we can have this access or this openness to something different. Right. And I I don't think that people can get to to thriving. So one of the things that I've heard you say before is people use the word thriving, uh, especially nowadays in all types of ways. Uh, And so we we can be very intentional and very specific about what I mean about uh, well-being and thriving and, and human flourishing. Um, I think if we go back and look at what Maslow is on about, um, I think it's clear that you have to have the basics met before you can you can look at anything past the basics. Uh, one of the founders of positive psychology, his name is Martin Seligman. Um, he is a psychologist who teaches right here in uh, Philadelphia. 
the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he says that you know his assessment of what psychology, clinical psychology, had been doing from its in inception is trying to get people to zero. Uh, and by that means really looking at the ways that they weren't functioning well so that they could get them to a baseline of, okay, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and about 20 years ago when uh, he and his colleagues, people like uh, Chris Peterson, uh, when they started looking at and, and, and asking questions about if some people are not doing well and it's our job to get them to zeros, to, to get them to, them to being okay, there are other people in society who are actually knocking it out of the park. They're doing great. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we can learn from them uh, that we could apply backward to the people who are already at zero mm-hmm. or the people who are already okay? Like, how can we get the people who are medium, if you will, uh, how can we get them to great? Mm-hmm. And, you know, thus was founded this, this notion of, of positive psychology. In the interim, or in these 20 years, they have developed, you know, some... Um, I guess some some ways to think about well-being, to think about happiness and say, these are some of the things that we need to check off or check for mm-hmm. to see if people are, are thriving. And so there's a there's a scientific way now to think about happiness or to think about thriving. So what is the scientific way to think about thriving? Probably the easiest way to conceptualize it is to use the PERMA model, which is a model of well-being that has been laid out by... Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson. Uh, when I say the PERMA model, these are the the letters. They all stand for something. It's P E R M A. P E R M A. What do they perma, stand for? Like permafrost. Like permafrost, right? Got it. Uh, the P in PERMA it stands for positive emotions. The E is for engagement, which is basically the same thing as flow. Um, there's an R for relationships, positive mm-hmm. relationships. M is for meaning. And A is for achievement. Okay. And they're kind of the minimal amount of things that are necessary to to have flourishing and well-being. Uh, and what's unique about each of these kind of modules is that they, they are things that people pursue for their own sake. Uh, and so they're not means to ends. People have positive emotions for their own, for their own ends, uh, not as a means to some other kind of uh, happiness or some other kind of well-being. We see that people pursue engagement for its own end. Uh, and this is true of all five. Of uh, There's some question as to whether health should count. Hmm. Uh, and right now, I think the, the psychologists are battling out trying to figure out whether or not people want health for its own sake or whether they want health as a means to some other kind of enjoyment or something. So if we think about thriving and, you know, if we're a person that would like to thrive, um, do we evaluate ourselves based on this PERMA scale? I think, you know, if we're going to do some self-evaluation, uh, Maslow might actually be a, a better place to start to make sure we're okay. Um, but if you are okay, if you are medium, if you're good, if you're ready to rock, uh, then... Uh, a self-assessment about how, how happy you are uh, might be a good place to start. Um, and then after you, you have a good sense of where you are in your happiness, then there are things that you can do, uh, like real things that you could just like add to your life to actually make it better. Uh, interventions, positive interventions. Hmm. 
Do you think that people have a false sense of their own happiness? Do you think that's possible? Wow. Uh, so that, that for me is a big question. It's one of the things that I guess I, I end up, uh, you know, wrestling with, with, with a lot of people. I think people, if you look at their self-assessment, I think most people will tell you that they're happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there's nobody on the, the planet who can kind of dispute uh, someone else's happiness. Um, but you have this this right now self who is making a global assessment. Uh, how happy are you? Mm-hmm. People say, oh, I'm pretty happy. Right. It is right then. Like if I think mostly if you ask people, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Right. The reason that's tricky is because. You know, you have your your right now self, and in that state, you're assessing your kind of global. Mm-hmm. And so, one, your happiness it ebbs and you know it ebbs and flows, right? It waxes and wanes, uh, and there isn't like a universal thing um, that you stays with you all the time. There's no permanent happiness. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, you know, how are we assessing our, our happiness? Um, and are you considering, I mean, there are loads of people who say, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Not everyone says that they are. Uh, but we know some, some real facts about, um, how people are living in the United States. So say, for example, um, 75% of people feel, uh, not engaged at work. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, is it possible that 75% of the people in the country feel like they're not fully engaged at work? And at the same time, every, almost everyone is saying, oh, I'm really happy. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if I'll, like even that, so maybe they're not engaged at work, but they are considering my happiness is going to come on the weekend. So I'm going to get through the work week and then the real, the real treat is going to be this weekend. So certainly I'm happy because I have the weekend to look forward to. <laughs> there are a lot. Uh, so now you're now you're strumming the the, the pain of America right now, right? Uh, with your fingers. Wow. Um, I didn't know it was that powerful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is what it means. Yes. Even though that's not a yes or no question, I I think um, there are loads of people who you know think think God for think God it's Friday, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get to relax a little bit. But relaxing over the weekend, uh, while that's important, that is not, that's not the only key to, to, to long-lasting happiness. Um, I think for long-lasting happiness, we need, we need engagement. And with 75% of, of people reporting that they're not, uh, they're not very engaged at work, uh, I just don't know how happiness levels can be very high. Um, but again, this is a kind of a global sense of self-reporting. And while self-reporting is really important, um, I think taking a more uh, methodological look at how happiness works is key to understanding really where people are. And, um, and, it's, and it's a better way to assess their overall levels of, of happiness. So you mentioned that self-reporting happiness is pretty important. Can you tell me why? Oh, yeah. So I, mean, it, I guess that's not necessarily obvious. Uh, in so many uh, areas of scientific inquiry, uh, self-reporting is not one of the most reliable um, things that you can use. But when it, when it comes to people's subjective states, right, and happiness is certainly a subjective state, 
when it comes to people's subjective state, then we don't really have a better measure than than self-reporting. Uh, now, there are ways to kind of catch people in the act that I think allows us to um, to get a better, more accurate sense of what's actually happening in their internal state. But because it's about their internal state and, and because it's subjective, then self-reporting in, in this regard is, is actually probably one of the better ways to engage, um, to, to assess what's actually happening internally. So self-reporting... Um, is important to help gauge what's happening internally. I think my question even earlier was if somebody's waiting for the weekend um, and they report themselves as happy because it's Wednesday and Saturday is just around the corner, how do you know that that's real happiness? So one of the things that happens is that we don't catch them on... uh, It's about getting them in the moment. And so I I used the word global earlier. Uh, A lot of times when you ask people, uh, are they happy? You're not asking them about that moment. You're asking them to make an assessment about kind of how they exist in time. Um, And there are all types of factors that that, uh, influence how they they answer. So one of the the guy who wrote uh, Flow, who we talked about earlier, Mihaj Except Mihai, he developed a method of uh, kind of sampling people's emotions in, in the moment. He had people wear pagers and he would call them at random. He would page them at random times throughout the day and they would call back and they would report about how they were feeling at that moment. And by having people report what they're feeling in the moment, he was able to get a much closer idea of what was happening for them in a given internal state and, and also ask them what they were doing. So what, how are you feeling right now? What's happening for you right now? And what activity are you engaged in right now? And what he found was that, one, I mean, he was able to discover the, the, the sort of optimal state of the flow state that people are, what, that people engage in. Right? Uh, what are the conditions that people enter into flow state, this kind of optimal um, state? But I, I think the other thing that stood out is that the, we, the way people report their global sense of happiness, oh, I'm great, versus what they were actually feeling in the moment didn't necessarily match mm. up. And there's a disconnect uh, between what's happening in a given moment. There are people's ability to assess their own kind of global happiness mm-hmm. versus what they were able to measure moment to moment. Those things didn't always match. Okay. Well, that makes sense then. It, because I think mostly people are kind of coming from um, a quick answer around I'm happy without really regarding whether they re- truly are happy or not. Right. And, you know, it, it seems counterintuitive that people don't always necessarily understand the thing that is going to make them happiest. Uh, but there's another uh, there's another example of, of people who are TV watchers. Uh, and so we have two groups of kids. And one group of kids get to choose to stay home and watch TV. Mm. Another group of kids, they have to get together, assemble their friends, and go and play uh, soccer, Mm -hmm. uh, play a game of soccer. Now, when both groups of kids are asked to assess the future level of happiness of the TV watchers... uh, both the, the, those kids who get to 
choose TV, say that, oh, watching TV will make me happier. And those kids who have to go out and play soccer also say that, oh, yeah, watching TV would make me mm. would make me happier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they both engage. Now, there there's a level of kind of startup energy, right? Activation energy that's necessary. You got to call your friends. Right. You got to get the equipment. You got to go out to the soccer field. You have to go and get set up. But immediately after the game, the... Um, the level of engagement, the level of excitement, the level of happiness, right, uh, of the kids who have played soccer is, you know, they measure it on a scale of one to ten. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. Uh, and their levels are through the roof. Because of the engagement? Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's engagement. It's with friends. They're active. They're in motion. There are all these things that are happening. They're kind of firing in, in like mm-hmm. many different like happiness, uh, you know, modalities. Whereas the kids who got to stay on the couch and watch TV, they take their assessment of how happy do you feel after the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it's not that great. Mm -hmm. It's deplorable. Mm -hmm. They are somewhere around a a three or four, Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, So the other trick is now after the game, they've asked these athletic kids. So how do you think the happiness of the kids on the couch. How do you Mm -hmm. think they're doing? And still, even though they're feeling great after the game, they still think that the kids on the couch had a better time. Ah. The kids on the couch still think that they themselves had a better time. So both before and after, both in terms of assessment and in terms of prediction, everyone believes that the kids on the couch will have a better time watching TV. Especially, I mean, you know, like the new Buffy the Vampire Slayer zone, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. That's an old show. But everyone thinks that the TV watchers will have the best time, both as a prediction and as an assessment, as a backward assessment. But when you look at their self-reporting in the moment, mm-hmm. how do you feel on, on a scale of 1 to 10? The kids who went out to play soccer blow the kids who were watching TV. They blow them out of the water. And so not, not all the time do we understand our own happiness. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's because we are prone to think that as little um, that we have to do, that the the less that we have to do, the happier we are? Yeah, I think that's absolutely. I mean, this is the the weekend theory, right? Mm -hmm. It's the beach theory that if I could just spend the rest of my life at the beach, mm-hmm. it'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. If I never had to work again, it'd be amazing. And do you think that's something that comes like intrinsically because rest feels good? Or do you think it's something that's been taught to us by our culture? So this gets a little complicated. I mean, it goes, part of it has to do with our deplorable levels of engagement. Mm-hmm. I think when people really, really don't like their, their jobs, then having time away from from their jobs Mm -hmm. does feel... I mean, you need that, right? Um, But they're not perhaps saying, I want time away from my job to go play soccer. Of of course not. They want unstructured time to relax. Mm -hmm. And we do need some unstructured time. Um, It just turns out that too much unstructured time, then we get get bored, even when we don't know we're bored. Mm -hmm. So too much unstructured time, um, unstructured downtime, is um, it, it turns out we don't like it nearly as much as we think that we do. I just think it's so interesting because you said even the soccer kids were saying probably the kids at the TV had a better time. And, you know, I'm just wondering, it was because that 
again, is it the craving for rest or is it because somehow you're told that on a couch with Netflix is the superior method of the day? I think both things are true, but, you know, I mean, it's cross-cultural enough. Uh, I think people think that downtime, um, so it's not just us. Maybe that I should say that uh, it's not just us. Okay. Uh, and by us, I mean, you know, us here in the United States. Uh, I think, so we looked at positive emotions and we looked at engagement. Uh, relationships, which I think might even play into the the Maslow thing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That we need positive relationships, relationships where people want the best things for us, and we want the best things for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all relationships are positive relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people want the worst for you, but you're still kind of stuck in some. You know, lots of people have coworkers that they just want to, you know, uh, wring their necks. Um, but having positive relationships, or if you live with teenagers or something like that, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, positive, you know, but but for us to thrive, certainly one of these critical things that is absolutely at the center of the human experience is having positive relationships, and so we can't really thrive without that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the R in PERMA. And that is a, a, a Maslow's. It's it's you know it's one of the first things on the scale because the love is what creates safety. Right. Yeah. Meaning is the M in PERMA, uh, and I think maybe Maslow touches on this too. Um, but, and you know, in a very, to put, to give it the context, meaning specifically is the idea of belonging to some group or community or some entity that is bigger than yourself. Mm. Uh, a lot of people do, do this through some form of service or religion or just being part of a, a community organization. But it's this relationship where you get to contribute. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing this contribution to something that um, just, just feels bigger than mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of meaning, it's, it, again, it's, it's not necessarily automatic and you have to work for it. So we're talking about service for most of the time. You actually have to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to go and contribute and do some stuff and move your your hands or your whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, and so that sense of meaning isn't automatic. Uh, but once you do it, it's a great contribution to your life. So I guess it really is more blessed to give than to receive. Absolutely. There we go. The last one is achievement, which... Um, and so, you know, you should think of achievement in terms of the idea of um, achieving something that is intrinsically valuable mm-hmm. um, and intrinsically motivating. Uh, there are some levels of, of achievement that we can attain where we are motivated extrinsically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that moment when you get to do the thing that you've always wanted to do, right? So you've been practicing uh you know, you've been practicing violin since you were eight. Mm-hmm. And now you're auditioning for the London Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And uh, you love the music. And they say the piece that you have to recite. And you were like, oh, that I'm going to nail this. Mm-hmm. And now your whole life is like, it's before you. And you mm-hmm. go and you do your thing. And boom, right? They like, we loved it. You're going to be part of the orchestra. We can't wait to whatever, right? Right. Uh, That feeling of I nailed it and it was something that I've always wanted my entire life. Like Mm -hmm. that you can't measure. That's immeasurable. Mm -hmm. And so when we have that that kind of intrinsic sense of pursuing this thing and we get to achieve it, Mm -hmm. that that is one of the hallmarks of, of really 
building a life of, you know, the good life, a life of just kind of fulfillment and happiness. Can this achievement also also look um, like a, a little bit smaller? Like maybe you, you know, you're you finally finished the the needle point that you've been working on for three months, and it's framed, and you're hanging it in your house now. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Uh, the thing that you've been working on that you've wanted to do, if it's intrinsic and you nailed it or you got it done, uh, that absolutely counts. So it doesn't have to be this thing that it you've worked have on to all be your life and LS- here I am, Lifetime Achievement Award. It doesn't have to be LSO level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, correct. It could be, you know, just achieving the thing that you've been working on. By the way, I, I don't know how to needlepoint, just for the record. I don't. I've never done it. Nor I. Okay. I don't even know what needlepoint is. Yeah. But... Well, we can talk about that on another show. Right. So it sounds like for achievement in um, this example, it's really about the key is that you work hard and the accomplishment comes from the hard work. You're putting an effort in, you are seeing the results, and that's where things feel so, um, that's when you start to feel accomplished. You had told me um, in the past about this example of like somebody winning the lottery I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this in, with regard to accomplishment or achievement. If it's just a lot of money that we get and we're not really putting in the hard work, I'm wondering, do you get the same results? And what is the story about the, the lottery if someone were to win it? If you win the lottery, um, you don't get that sense of achievement. Uh, you just haven't worked for it. Uh, and part of, you know, working for something and to a real degree, it requires a, a sacrifice, requires a dedication. You're working, you're putting in effort. Um, it is a sense of both delay of gratification, uh, a focus on a goal that's in the future, and a development uh, and sacrifice around the movement of uh, you know toward that goal. Mm-hmm. Just having something fall in your lap uh, doesn't do nearly as much. So one, you don't get this sense of achievement. But also, you know, if it's something like the lottery, you know, the lottery is essentially, it's essentially, it's a bump up in a particular um, good, right? Um, which all goods we will habituate to. They, they don't last. They will give us a bump to our happiness, which will last for a limited amount of time. And then will habituate. So if you if you make the soccer team or if you get into the London Symphony Orchestra or you finish that needlepoint uh or you know, uh if you finish that, then you can look back and say I did that. It, it came from me. Right. No one can take that away. Mm-hmm. But you win the lottery, so somebody could take it away. Mm-hmm. There's some things that um when you earn it, it's just uh, a different feeling and and certainly um you know, people pursue that for its own end. Isn't there something that I think you've told me before that there's a a statistic out there around people who do win the lottery, how they are happy initially, but then somehow this levels off? And what is that? Um, Yeah, I mean, they get a bump uh, to their happiness that lasts, I don't know, as long as six months, but eventually they will go back down to their base level of happiness. So it really isn't the money. I mean, that bumps. It feels good for a time. But because of the hard work that they didn't get to actually accomplish it or achieve something, then it, it's not sustainable. 
Yeah, so I don't think that it has to do... I mean, it's it's this thing that is completely extrinsic. Okay. Um, and so anything that we can buy or anything that we can hold, the tangible things, mm-hmm. um, that's just the nature of them. Even oh. if we work really hard for... Like, if you are trying to win the Golden Fleece, right? Jason comes, he's trying to get the Golden Fleece. He works really hard at it. He's prepared his, his entire life. Soon as he, you know, sees the Golden Fleece and he's about to have it in his hand... He is going to have a dopamine hit that's so high, he'll finally get the thing, mm-hmm. um, which won't be as sweet as him being about to get it. But eventually, even if he worked really hard to get it, the Golden Fleece is going to be like, you know, in six months to a year, he's not going to care about the Golden Fleece. Would that be true for the position in the symphony then, too? Well, I mean... I don't know if that is extrinsic in the same way. Mm. Um, the thing is, you can touch a golden fleece, oh. right? It's this thing. It's a. It's an object. Um, it could be that way for mm. the position in the symphony, uh, but it needn't be that way. Whereas, absolutely, um, you know, we could predict that that is going to happen with the golden fleece, depending on what this position in the London Symphony Orchestra is going to deliver. Uh, it could potentially be exhilarating. I mean, constantly engaging, learning new pieces, playing with your peers, like playing at the edge of your ability. So know that you you probably won't habituate mm. to that if you love music, if you love to play and you've been practicing your whole life. I see. I can see the difference. Yeah. So we're, we're getting pretty close to the end here. Um, so we should probably wrap it up. There's so many more things that we can talk about with regard to thriving and We'll probably get to that on another show, but I think this is a pretty good foundation. Yeah, I mean, you, you already know this about me. Certainly, I've said it that, you know, my I, I want everyone to thrive and I, I just want people to be able to live their best lives. And so we'll go through looking at and examining the, these ideas that I hopefully can help people, um, yeah, be able to. Sure. To do that, yeah, and I think even as we have other topics in the show, this will come up. Um, this will be kind of woven through other things of how to experience life in a particular way that that makes life better. Right. On that note, we're going to sign off. But if you have liked what you heard today, certainly tune in again and leave us a rating on whatever podcast platform that you find us Mm -hmm. on i think we have a couple ratings we need a few million more (laughs) that's all it'll take to get us there a few million so tell your friends until next time see ya